0: All right, let me pray and we'll jump in. Lord, we appreciate this time together tonight and um, pray for a uh, divine attentiveness with all the babies and all the extra noises, just pray that you can tune us in to something that matters. Lord, we're thankful for an explanation of sin and the origin of sin and the implications and pray that you'll open our eyes as to what it means and um, the anatomy of sin and how we can stay in front of it, how we can be aware of the wiles of Satan and, and how we can um, pursue purity. And, um, Lord, we just turn this night over to you, and we look forward to digging in. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Scott finished making woman last week, right? The woman is not half-made anymore. Who was here last week? We've got a little bit of a refresher going tonight. There's, um, I gave Scott my notes, and Scott was working on his own notes, so you may have gotten uh, some of both of our thoughts the other night. Let me begin with woman being made in chapter 2, verse 18, just a quick refresher on a few things. It is not good that man should be left alone or should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. It's interesting that God recognizes it's not good for man to be alone. So rather than make a woman first thing, he has Adam name all the beasts. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He recognized that man needed someone, and he decided that he, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. The word is suitable for him. And down in the bottom, I've got a little note in my Bible, which is really a good translation. I'm going to make a helper corresponding to him. That's a good way to, for men, for you to think about your wives as they correspond to you. That that I shared a few weeks ago the cheesy comment that I heard in a movie years ago, back when Christy and I were still going to to uh, girl movies together. I don't go to him anymore. She has to go by herself. and We go every now and again on a special occasion. But um, this statement was made, you complete me. And it was just so gushy and girly, and, and she just loved it, as most girls were would. But that's actually pretty biblical, that I'm going to make a help, helpmate, a helper that's corresponding to you. But then he goes off and makes all these creatures and all these beasts and actually has Adam name every single one of them. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. Even the dogs, I think it's important to know, that recognize that even the dogs weren't suitable. You know, dogs are cool, but they're not a helpmeet. I mean, they're not really a true companion. They're great to have around, but even a dog doesn't compare. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. One of the things that I brought out a couple weeks ago is the, the key role that God has in bringing us together, husband and wife. You think you found each other, but in fact, God ordained it from the very beginning. Now, Christy and I, we met on the A&M College campus, and... Um, she was sitting underneath a tree outside studying, and I thought, man, how granola, how cool, just kind of nature girl, you know. Walked up and introduced myself, and that began our relationship, and there's temptation for me to think that I found her underneath a tree on Alien College campus, but God ordained that. God brought her to man. That's why the, the phrase that you hear in a wedding, that's always, that you always hear it in a wedding, it's so important. What God has brought together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There's a temptation to see just the union, that ceremony, as the joining together. But you've got to realize that God, God's hand has been all over it from the very beginning. And then if you find yourself in a marriage that's difficult, and you're like, man, this is just really hard, you can trust that God's on his throne. And it's hard for a reason. Maybe he wants you to need him more. Maybe he wants to be more involved in your marriage. Likely that's the case. He brought her to the man. And then the man said, just so appropriate that he responded this way after naming all the beasts, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. That phrase at last suggests that he was ready for woman. I mean, this was a big event for Adam. The Young's Literal Translation, did Scott share this with you all last week? Young's Literal Translation, it's, it's not a real common translation. It's not even in print anymore, but I use it all the time in study. And really what it is, is kind of an old, really, well, it's a real literal translation. They took the Greek or they took the Hebrew and just translated it real directly, so it's real abrupt, and it doesn't flow well, and there's a lot of old words, but sometimes it will illuminate some something you really need to dig into. But the Young's Literal Translation... <laughs> for this phrase, uh, at last, is actually, this is the proper step. Now, so, this is the proper step, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Now, at last, finally, the BIV, Ben International Version, is now you're talking, God. You've trooped all these critters out in front of me. I've named them all, but now this is what I'm talking about. Dogs were cool, but they don't even compare to what you've just trooped out in front of me. Now you're talking, God. Great googly moogly and a show that I used to watch when I was a kid, Shazam. That would be an appropriate response. Shazam, okay? And Adam names her, exercising dominion. It's important to recognize that the first poetry in our Bibles is love poetry. And that's what this is right here. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, one of the things that I encourage Scott to bring out that's worth reiterating tonight is that this union that God brings together where He makes woman from man and then He brings her back to the man, presents her to the man, this union that in verse 24 it begins with, Therefore, because God made her and brought her to the man, a man shall leave his father and cleave, or leave his father and mother, and hold fast, or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The reason that marriage is the way it is, is because that's the way God designed it. And the importance of cleaving husband and wife, cleaving to each other, leaving mommy and daddy too. That the picture that is very important for y'all to appreciate, and for us to appreciate in our marriages, for us to teach our children, is the primary relationship in our home is what? primary relationship in our home is what? I'm going to test you. Mommies, what is it? Huh? Okay, well, I, I'm, yes, yes, coming from this passage, exactly. <laughs> Husband and wife relationship, and mommies, I know it's just all over you, that there's the temptation for your primary focus in life to be about those kids because they have tremendous needs, and I understand that. But the primary responsibility that you have is helping your husband. And, husband, the primary responsibility that you have is not outwitting the bread, but is actually guarding and keeping your wife, tending to your wife. Now, that's part of it, being a breadwinner, but it's also being a shepherd, it's also being a minister, it's also being an encourager and a and a, uh, everything that a guarder and keeper, or guardian and keeper would be. The best thing you can give your children is what? A healthy marriage, I saw you mouth it. Yeah, y'all can talk in here. Just because I'm on mic, uh, don't, don't be frightened by that. That's so people that aren't here can, get, can still hear our Bible studies. One of the things, too, that I think is important to bring out is that marriage is not just a remedy for loneliness, there's a temptation to see this where God recognizes, He says specifically, it's not good for man to be alone, so He makes him a helper, and He creates marriage, but marriage is so much more than just a remedy for loneliness because this whole thing is imported into, actually, it's escorted throughout the whole Old Testament to be an image of the marriage is an image or an illustration of the relationship between God and His people. And then the New Testament it's a picture of relationship between Christ and the church. So this, this is really just a tutor that's to teach us. And the cool thing is, is we have a little micro-tutor in our homes. Every All of us that are married, Now I'm making the assumption, I know some of the young people may not be married. You can watch mom and dad, and you're supposed to have a tutor on what the gospel is supposed to look like. The way Christ has loved the church, we ought to be able to look at daddy or look at husband and say, well, that's what that looks like. The way that man is loving that woman is supposed to be an image of the way Christ had died for the church, and the way that that woman is following the leadership of the man is supposed to be a picture of the way crosspoint fellowship follows Christ and the church follows Christ now I realize unless your home has has uh, has been glorified and perfected that you're not there yet i'm not we 're not there either, but it's cool to know that we have the standard and we do we do know that We have that in-home tutor, that in-home micro-gospel. Our little homes are like a micro-earth where we get to live out the gospel and live it outright, where husband and wife interact with each other. Christ and the bride are illustrated every day. God and His people are illustrated every day. That should give us a higher view of marriage, a higher view of the home, of what actually takes place there, a greater urgency about is it appropriate for us to just spend hours upon hours upon hours in front of the TV and never interact with each other? (laughs) I mean, really, given that, would it be appropriate for Christ to just hang out in front of the TV when the church is sitting there going, I need you? I mean, really, I'm picking on TV a little bit tonight because I know that's the vacuum in a lot of cases. It may be something else. It may just be busyness. It could be recreation. It could be whatever that just kind of sucks you all apart. We have to recognize the gravity of what our homes are. They illustrate the gospel. So we should be more urgent about them. Okay, that was just a refresher from last week. Marriage is more than a remedy to loneliness. Let's, let's look at verse 25. That's where we're really going to pick up tonight, and we're going to go into, into chapter 3 up through verse 7. But I want to begin with the last verse in chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and lack of shame. Naked and not not of shame is a picture of the openness and the vulnerability and the trust between husband and wife. It's appropriate between husband and wife. And I think, you know, there's a temptation to think, you know, in a a minute we're going to see that after the fall that Adam and Eve were ashamed and they're looking for some clothes. Now, they, they didn't go exactly pick the finest linen, are the finest items for their clothing, but I guess they picked all they, all they thought they had. But they were ashamed, and that that shame, I think, although we, we kind of talk about this being horizontal, I think that shame is primarily vertical. Shame between man and God. I think the fact that husband and wife are still okay being naked with each other is the picture that husband and wife really become one. There's a union there. There may be some shame being naked in the neighborhood or something but husband and wife for the most part they're okay in that setting i was taking hebrew class in uh, seminary and i will never forget this 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 class period we have a lot of students from all over the world in our classes and we had a guy from china that was sitting behind me this guy had the best sense of humor i mean he just he was just a barrel of laughs i mean but we, i mean our our teacher is teaching this passage and um points to the picture she's our teacher was suggesting that um, that there was shame in the vertical direction between husband and wife. That now they're recognizing, oh, I'm naked and I need to go find some fig leaves. And he said, uh, a doctor. I don't remember what the lady's name was. A doctor, so and so. I have a question. He said, yes. And I don't even remember remember what his name was. Hung or something like that. Yes, hung. Uh, how come you say they ashamed? Of when they naked in front of each other, because I naked in front of my wife all the time, and I'm not ashamed. (laughs) I will never forget that, because the class just—I mean, we just it just fell apart, disassembled from that point on. I naked in front of my wife, and we not ashamed, and I not ashamed. But I think that's that's a picture here that this shame that you're going to see later is primarily vertical. And it probably has a horizontal element from probably outside of the union of marriage. Marriage is that united, that perfect, that intimate, and that vulnerable. And their nakedness together is a picture of that. Nakedness is also a picture of vulnerability, searchability, and authenticity. I want you all to appreciate that this is pre-fall, that nakedness is cool. I mean, nakedness was the way it was. And there's... You can't be, or you have to be searchable when you're naked. You have to be vulnerable. I mean, you're just, there you are. You can't hide anything, and you have to be authentic. You can't be somebody that you're not when you're naked, because that's just who you are. So keep those pictures in mind, because those are going to come back around. They they may come back around tonight, but they'll at least come back around when we start talking about the church and the imagery of the church. The people of God that are actually returned, to the pre-sin garden in terms of our relationship between us and God. Before the gar- or before the fall, there was this walking in the cool of the day relationship between God and man, but then there's sin, and then man's evicted from the garden. Well, think about that pre-sin relationship between Adam and Eve, that they were completely naked in, fr- in, in front of each other. They were vulnerable. They were um, searchable. They were authentic. The church ought to be that way, too. Now, obviously, with our clothes on, but in terms of the imagery of that, that if there's ever a place where we should be searchable, authentic, vulnerable, it should be among the people of God because we're back in the garden again. We're walking in the cool of the day again with the the living God because of the work of Christ. We're escorted back into the garden. So we can be vulnerable and authentic with each other. Unfortunately, church is the place that we're often the least authentic Think about it. I mean, if we're honest, it's the place that oftentimes we try and smear on our, our smile for Sunday morning. Oh, man. Oh, I hate that. Slap on that smile. Everything's cool. Everything's good. We, it, 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 harmony in our home. We love our jobs. We love our lives. Huh? But church should be the place where we're the most authentic. And then when we get to work on Monday morning, we're like, man, life is miserable. Things are terrible at home, and we're talking with our neighbor, our, our cubicle mate, that may not even know the Lord. We're being authentic with them. And the people of God should, should be in that pre-fig leaves, pre-animal skins place where we're truly authentic and genuine and vulnerable with each other. I said I was going to get to that later. I got to it just now. So, Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, something that's interesting is that the word for the nakedness of Adam and Eve, the um, nude is a play on words with the shrewd of um, our serpent here. Now, I'm speaking in English. In the Hebrew, it's actually almost the same word. It's weird. It's just a very slight difference. It's a play on words there that as these guys are vulnerable and susceptible, the contrast there is they've got somebody shrewd and, um, what's the other word, crafty in the same setting. While they were naked and vulnerable, there was one crafty and shrewd in the same garden. Okay, Adam and Eve are especially vulnerable, and then there's Satan. Now, we know that Satan, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, refers to the serpent of old. You probably don't need Revelation 20, chapter 2, 20, verse 2, to know that we're talking about that that the serpent is um, Satan. But we know that for sure, at least from Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. That this serpent is—we don't know if he is, if if this snake was possessed by Satan, or if Satan just took on the form of a snake. We don't know any of those things, but we know that that at least the communication that we're getting from this snake. We also know that God curses the snakes, so I don't know if it's uh, possession or embodiment. Uh, we don't know that, but this snake is more crafty and shrewd than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now I, I I asked this question and it's just a question for us to kind of think about. Would you say that this serpent is more crafty and shrewd than man? It says specifically there, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Would you say that the serpent is more crafty or shrewd than man? It doesn't say that, but from what unfolds, what do you think? Okay, we're going to look at that actually in a moment, yeah, John chapter 8, yeah. But what un- from what unfolds, would you say that the, the serpent is more crafty and shrewd than man? Yeah, I, I would say yes for a man who's not listening to God. The man or woman, in this case, at least the first one, that, that, uh, the one that was deceived that led her husband into it, she proved that she was, that the serpent was more crafty and um, shrewd than she was. And uh, she, she also demonstrated that it's likely because she wasn't listening to God. Some of the things that she's about to say are going to demonstrate that she wasn't listening to God. Now, she may have not had a direct line of communication with God. She may have been hearing the Word of God via Adam, which is likely, which we'll talk about that also. Now, Satan, the word Satan, the name Satan means accuser. There's some things that I think are important to consider that are kind of um, illuminated about Satan. This is like Satan month at Crosspoint Fellowship. Between what we're looking at tonight and what we're looking at the next two Sundays, we're going to put a big spotlight on him. And we're going to re- reduce him to what he really is, I think, from what kind of the world says, this scary monster that the world says that he is. We're going to reduce him to what he really is. But we want to understand him. We want to understand how he operates and some things that he's privy to. First, keep your finger in Genesis and turn over to Job chapter 1. to we'll take a little... Uh, Take a few minutes and just consider some things we can learn about Satan. The first one is that Satan, the accuser, the serpent, knows divine matters. He's not in the dark on things. He's terribly informed. Look at this, Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is privy to divine workings. The fact that Satan had access to God and could communicate with God about Job gives us some indication that Satan is not completely in the dark. And I don't, don't equate the imagery of darkness with what I'm talking about there. He's not ignorant to divine issues. Look there in uh, chapter 3, verse 5. We're going to get there in a moment, but just look ahead of Genesis. Satan is talking with the, uh, the serpent is talking with the woman and he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, he, he is privy to the conversation that Adam and God have already had in chapter 2, verse 16, where God commands the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Satan was listening in. You think Satan is not privy to what we're talking about right now? We're shedding a light on him and his business and his workings over the next few weeks at Crosspoint. You think he's not going to be hacked about that? You think he's not privy to that? He knows every bit of what's being talked about right now. He's not in the dark. He is in on divine matters. He's well-informed, and he's educated on you. He has your number. I mean... I don't don't know how old, I know we're all different ages, but I bet you can look back and think about times where, yeah, he had my number. He still got it. He still knows the things that you're prone to. He still knows the things that you're working on, that God is working and rotting in you. He's crafty and shrewd. Turn to John chapter 8. We're just going to look at a few different passages to kind of uh, shed some more light on this guy. John chapter 8, verse 44. This is a pretty controversial chapter in uh, the ministry of Christ. He's, he's just preached about being the light of the world, and a bunch of people have believed in him, and then he continues to preach. This, I've shared this on a Sunday morning where we're like, oh no, Jesus, sit down. We've had a successful uh, revival. Let's just sit down. But he continues to preach, and that's when he says, if, uh, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This sermon escalates into, by the end of the chapter, they want to stone him. And part of it is because he says, your daddy is the devil. (laughs) They're saying, well, we don't need to be free. What are you talking about? We're sons of Abraham. He says, "Uh ah, your daddy is the devil. And then he illuminates some things about Satan over here in verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. How did he demonstrate that? Just in this first initial phrase with Eve where he says, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree of the garden. What does he do to that statement? Or what did he do to the original statement to make that statement? Think about it. He turned into a question. Huh? Yeah, he twists what God told him. God God's message was about provision, ample provision. That was the emphasis. And then, oh, by the way, prohibition. The emphasis from God was provision, and oh, by the way, don't eat from that one. A little bitty sliver of prohibition, yet Satan turns the whole thing into one big prohibition. I mean, listen to what the original the original was. I read it just a moment ago, but listen to it again. Listen to what Satan does to it. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Satan twists that. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He misquotes God and twists the truth just a bit. I mean, he's crafty. He's shrewd. That's the way he operates. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse four excuse me for verse 14 I'm going to start in verse 12 but I want to emphasize verse 14 and what do I do and, and what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's Satan's modus operandi. I'm going to look like I'm good. I'm going to look like I'm helpful. Hey, Eve, hey, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees? Let me kind of make this sound trivial. And let me kind of twist it a little bit. Let me come across as an angel of light. You know, we kind of goofy, we have these goofy images of Satan where he's got this red, red horns and red tail and he's a goofy looking red critter that's so obvious. Satan's not that obvious. Satan's going to be a shade of good and a shade of the truth, but he's going to be twisted just enough to where it's no longer the truth. That's the way he operates. Revelation chapter 12, verse nine is another passage to look at. Turn there. Revelation 12:9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There he is, the father of lies. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. He's a deceiver of the whole world. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. I was reading Colossians while we were in Pittsburgh, and this verse just leapt out at me because I think um, in this day and age of uh, I think, therefore, I am. You know, if I can think it, then it must be. That's kind of the mindset that we're in. And um, that's kind of the litmus test for whether something truly is or not. If I can think it, and if I can't think it, then it must not be. That's kind of the way we work. Okay, I was thinking about this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4. It just, just nailed me. Paul is writing to this church, and he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I. It's one of the beauties of reading a different version after years. I'm reading the ESV, and that word plausible just climbed all over me. What does the New American Standard say instead of plausible? What is it? Persuasive. Persuasive. Okay, persuasive, yeah, I could see that. But plausible, that's a word we use all the time. When you're talking about science stuff, or you're talking maybe an engineering design, that's a plausible design. (laughs) I think that may have some merit. I mean, if you ever use that word, I I, I looked it up on dictionary.com and here's what it means. Having an appearance of truth or reason, seemingly worthy of approval or acceptance, credible or believable. That's the way Satan works. He doesn't have like this ludicrous, stupid plan where everybody's like, man, that's from Satan. That's stupid. That's so obvious. It's going to be a shade of, hey, that's kind of a good idea but it's going to deviate from this. And Paul is warning them, stay away from the plausible arguments, the persuasive arguments. This is the argument right here. The, with the definite article. Period. So stay away from things that even might sound like they're kind of rational. Because remember how we operate? If we think, if I think, therefore I am, I think, therefore it must be. That's not the way things work. Because there are lots of things that we can't get our our head around that are. (laughs) And if something can only be if I can get my head around it, then there's not much really existing if it's only up to me. Think about it. I mean, how many of you can explain gravity? But it is. There it is. So that's not a good design, but that's the way our minds have been conditioned, the Western mind especially. I think, therefore, I am. If I can think it, it must be. If I can't think it and I can't understand it, then it must not be. That's a plausible argument, but that's not this argument. And Paul's saying, stay away from those things. That's the way Satan works. That sounds reasonable. That sounds logical. Okay? He says, did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He emphasized prohibition, not God's ample provision. I want you to think about and realize, for those of you who have shared your faith before with people, friends, family, workmates, whoever, that Satan influences people this way, the very same way. As you're sharing your faith with someone, and you're sharing how awesome Christ is and what he's done and this work of the gospel and the sweet. Joy of walking with Christ and being part of the people of God and having a hope and, you know, an assurance. And you're sharing all those things, and their mind is clouded with this primary thought about all they've got to give up to follow Christ. Because Satan is emphasizing the prohibition. He's maximizing and turning it into this big monster of prohibition. i got to give up this and that and this. I I can't give those things up. Meanwhile, Satan is blinding them to the ample provision. You'll see it all the time. That's the way Satan works. He maximizes and emphasizes prohibition, and under-emphasizes um, God's ample provision. He wants God's word to appear harsh and restrictive. Okay, what else do you notice about God's method, or excuse me, Satan's method in how he tempts, or how he introduces? This couple into sin. How he deceives them. What did you just say, Jeff? He okay. He, what, what about the woman? Okay. He one on one, and he that's good too. He picked on the woman. He started. He divided, and he went to the woman. Now, I might get myself in trouble here. Turn to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. As much as the potential for to get myself in trouble here, there's the potential here for men to have a higher view of our roles as husbands, and wives to have a more desperate view of following your husband. Okay, so I, I, I'm willing to take the risk. Second Timothy chapter three, beginning in verse one. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Before I continue, remember where, uh, well, I haven't even really told you where we're going. We're going to look at um, the, why Satan's designed to attack the woman, why we might ought to understand that and appreciate that, and how Satan may tend to work that way. Listen to this. Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. This is Second Timothy chapter three. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households. Households sounds like marriages and families to me. Okay, these guys, these these essentially wicked. Sons of disobedience, for that matter. They creep into households and they capture weak women. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Where are the men in that? These guys, they sneak in and they get the women. Because there's a temptation or there's a potential there that may not be there with men. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to illuminate this and show you this because this is, um, I think, this is important. Second Peter chapter three, verse seven. It says, "Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel." showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, there's the potential to view this in solely a physical way. Okay, that We must be talking about a physical way because women can't lift as much as men, which is not necessarily true. It depends on the woman and the man. But for the most part, maybe we're talking about a physical way. But there is a spiritual element here. Folks, it's not saying that women are not as robust in their faith as men. But it's saying that there's some unique relationship there between husband and wife and the devil. And the devil wants to get at the marriage and get at the family and get at God's people through the wife. He can do that. And he's shown that pattern already. He did it in the garden, starting with Eve. Turn to this to another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to make my point here, so if ladies, if some of you are kind of bristling right now, hang in there for the point, okay, before you <laughs> before you bristle to the point where you're not hearing what I'm saying. I, I'm not assuming that anybody's there, because I know that many of you just, hey, if it says it, that's what it says. Here's, oh, I'm in First Thessalonians, so I might need 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse... 13, and 15, 13 through 15. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul is saying why he doesn't allow women to teach in the church. He says, I don't allow women to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There seems to be a picture there of a weaker vessel that is a, has a big bullseye on your back, ladies. I'm not picking on you. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a woman. I like woman. I'm married to one. I treasure. I got, I'm, my daughter, I got a daughter that is one. But here's the point. The best protection for women is a loving shepherd guarding and keeping and tending to the garden. That's the best protection for the family, for the home, for the people of God, is for a man to tend to his wife and to guard her and protect her. I can't help but wonder what the impact would have been if Adam would have been more attentive to guarding and protecting his wife. Okay, so don't, don't take that too far and don't, don't think I'm beating up women. I love, I love one in particular, too. It sure could be. Yeah, sure could be. Yeah. Hopefully, from little glimpses like that, you see a picture of a, more, a greater urgency for man to go, ooh, I've got to guard and protect my wife. And also see a responsibility where wife is going, ooh, I need to listen to my husband and try and climb under his wing of protect, protection and guard. And that God blesses that. Now, I realize that there are times where none of us, men-wise, husband-wise, are worthy of that. And the wife may be like, you are a bonehead today. But in large part, that's God's design, is that wife seeks uh, the wisdom and counsel of her husband and that the husband is urgent, serious about protecting his wife and guarding his wife and being the sort of man that she would want to seek protection in. Now, here's a question for you. Who made the serpent? Who made the serpent? God. Okay. Do you think he was surprised at what the snake would do? Hopefully not. I hope that that if anything that we're seeing that is developing over time, we're going to address this on the next couple of Sundays too, is that sovereignty means that God's not caught surprised by anything. Uh, uh, Mike Schorzer makes fun of me because I say this often. He's not caught unawares. He actually asked me, is that plural? I said, no, that's the real word, unawares. He's not caught unawares. He's not caught off guard like, oop! well, looky there. Satan just got one over on me. Up, oh, he snuck down into the garden. God does not work that way. Sovereignty means that he knows he was there. In fact, he created him. Okay, we've got to understand that. And I think that will give you a higher view of God and appreciate that there's a big D designer involved in this whole thing and that God has allowed certain things to take place. He's ordained certain things to take place so that His Son would be glorified as the Savior and that He would show up as big D deliverer and that we would worship Him and that we would need Him more. Okay? I think there's his, hand, his handiwork is all over it. Does anybody know how Satan got to earth? It's a a passage that I read tonight already. I'll read it again. Revelation, I've shared with you before, Revelation is kind of a um, um, time gumbo. (laughs) It's like all these weird glimpses of time that, you know, we, we like to timeline things. We like to see them on a continuum of time and space. But Revelation doesn't necessarily work that way. And there's a picture of in chapter 12, verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That's a picture of the primordial war. Primordial war where Satan and his demons were cast down to earth. Okay, so that's how he got here. He did. He's here by design, though. Okay, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the... Tr- oh, we're back in Genesis chapter 2, 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Listen to what she says to you. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She indicates by her answer to Satan that she got some instruction from Adam. Now, we don't know what the disconnect was. We don't know if Adam just didn't do a good job communicating. (laughs) That's a possibility. He's a man. Okay, he may not have really given all the details. Or we don't know if she really listened to him either. He may have given explicit instruction of in what God told them. She indicates that she got some instruction, but I cannot help but wonder if Adam raised the bar on her. I can't help but wonder. I don't know if that's a result of the fall or if that's just kind of Part of being a man, part of being human, is that we like to raise bars. The the problem with the Pharisees is that what they did, and Jesus accused them and says, You put a heavy yoke around the people. What they did is they built a hedge around the law. The law was that what, what God had given in the, the first five books of the Old Testament, but they built a hedge around it. You can't walk a certain number of steps, you can't borrow something from your neighbor. You can't cook something on this day. You have to prepare it today. I mean, all these different rules that just really, what they did is they built a hedge around the law to protect them from breaking the law, and they raised the bar above God's standard. I can't help but wonder, we don't know this for sure, but I can't help but wonder if Adam is talking to Eve and he says, Eve, God told me we're not supposed to eat the fruit from that garden, I mean, from that tree, and... uh, he also told me, if you touch it, you'll die. I can't help but wonder if he just raised the bar like a good Pharisee, like a good human, because that's exactly the sort of thing that we do. I'll give you an example, and I need to, and, and, and I want you to see this example. And I realize we're just kind of wondering, but realize that we're prone to doing this in each other's lives. Alcohol is a great example of this. It is such, and it, this is not my pet. I want you to know this right up front. Alcohol is not my pet. I'm not fighting for or against it. It just doesn't doesn't matter that much to me either way. But there's the potential to say, ooh, you know, you could get drunk, so we should never touch it. In fact, touching it is sin. In fact, buying it is sin. In fact, being around it is sin. Looking at it. And it's just raising the bar. Boop, boop, boop. It's getting higher and higher. Before long, we've all fallen. And we can do the same. It's ironic that we do that with alcohol. We don't do it with cheesecake. You know, that it gets, you can have all the cheesecake you want, but we won't build a hedge around cheesecake. We'll build a big old hedge around alcohol. And I, again, please don't hear that as, as encouraging alcohol use or discouraging it. I'm just using that as an example for taking something that is easy, a bar that's easy to raise, especially in our, in our Christian culture here in Greenville. Okay, look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The father of lies twists the truth yet again. In one way, he's right that she wouldn't die for touching it, okay? But in the other way, he's wrong and he's lying, for if she eats of it, she will surely die, as he said. Serpent presents God as not wanting the best for his creatures. He presents God as kind of selfish and not really disclosing all everything and kind of keeping things from man and proves that he's an artful deceiver. He also downplays her fears of God. Realize that's one of the ploys of Satan is to minimize fear of God. Now, ultimately, she had this fear that I'm going to die, whether I touch it or whether I eat it, I'm going to die. And you can hear that fear in her voice, and he says, oh, you're not going to die. And he takes that fear of God and he minimizes it. But look at this, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. I can't help but wonder sometimes if uh, fear of God has been minimized in my Christian walk. I... I have not um, had a real robust development of the fear of God in my diet over the years, up until the last four or five or so. But you know, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God is all over this Bible. It's all over it. Listen to this, Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's like when you begin to fear the Lord, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're actually going to learn something. That's kind of the point there, that fearing God is a healthy thing, and Satan's design is, oh man, he's just kind of grandpa. He just didn't want you guys to have a good time. You know, you eat that fruit. It's going to be fun. You know, you're going to have a great time. And you know but he's he's just kind of old man t-shirt sort of guy sitting around he he'll he'll brush it off he'll laugh it off turn to second corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. (laughs) He's basically saying that in in pursuing purity, pursuing holiness, that you can't do that but by the fear of the Lord. That the very thing that Satan wants to minimize is the very instrument that brings us into purity. Purity. And brings us into growing in holiness. Here's another passage. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. This was another passage that reached out and grabbed me in Pittsburgh. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. Submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Who has a New American Standard? What does it say? In the fear of Christ. Man, fear and Christ, they don't really go together very much. It it's kind of like this pal sort of sort of mindset and this Michael Bolton lookalike, nice guy, with this fear, recognition of his power and recognition of who he is is a healthy thing. And Satan, his design is to minimize that. I was thinking about this whole scenario and what this was like. When I was a kid growing up in Louisiana, I, I grew up in the home, my, my parents are teetotalers, I mean, never have touched alcohol in their entire life, never, never been even around it. That's the kind of environment that I grew up in, and I remember going over to a friend's house, uh, a friend named Lee Gwynn, and we, I don't know, what we seventh grade or something like that, and there was a neighbor that was in ninth grade, and he came over to our, to, to Lee's house, and we were all hanging out, playing, doing something, taking our bikes, and jumping, you know, the little things in the driveway, you know, getting hurt. I was a little fat kid. I was getting hurt every time doing that kind of stuff. I had nothing to do with anything. I was just, I don't want to share that. But Lee, Lee's parents had this liquor cabinet inside their house. And this ninth grader talked Lee into opening up the liquor cabinet and saying, hey, man, your parents just don't want you to have a good time. Let's go get it. Now, I didn't. I was, 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 um, I was scared to death. I, I didn't even go there. I was, I was trying to figure out a way to get home. I was calling my parents, come get me, you know. But that whole scenario, it kind of reminded me of the ninth grader kind of being like Satan and my buddy Lee kind of being like Eve, you know, and Adam. Ooh. And Satan kind of saying, oh, man, or the ninth grader saying, oh, man, go ahead. Your mom and dad just don't want you to have any fun. That's kind of an illustration of what's taking place here. Verse 6. We may stop there. Yes, let's stop there. We'll pick up in verse 6 next Wednesday night. I know that's a real abrupt stop. I'm trying to think if I can give you some homework. Okay, yeah, there is some homework here. Okay, look at verse 6 and 7 for next week. Go ahead and read further because we're going to go further next week. But look especially at verse 6 and 7 and try and kind of diagram the anatomy of sin. Just look at what takes place in Eve and then Adam and how sin enters into this couple and into the family at that point. But look at what takes place first and in what order. And then just kind of jot those things down and have those for next week. And we'll talk about that. Okay? Anybody have any questions, any last-minute thoughts before we shut it down? Let me I have a kind of feel like I need to make a little caveat. I want to remind you all I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't have a pet in alcohol. A couple little alcohol illustrations tonight, it's not a pet for me for or against. It's just, it's not an issue. It's one that we can visualize and, and envision some things. So it was just a teaching instrument tonight. Um, you know, the, the elders, we kind of stand in different places on this issue of alcohol. None of us, it, is, is it a, a mountain or a pet? And uh, I really don't think it should be for any of us. But if, if you want to know, at least where I stand, there's an there's a Ask the Elders um, question on the website. If, if you're kind of curious about that, I actually address a couple of things that I've addressed tonight, but, but please hear that I am not um, encouraging it or discouraging it. Um, it's just not an issue. I don't know why I felt like I needed to add that. It's such a hot, volatile issue in our climate, in our Christian climate, that I feel like I'm, I just want to share that and add that. Anybody have any final thoughts or anything? All right, let me close this in prayer. Any ladies mad at me? <laughs> Nobody? I see smiles. I see a few stern faces. It's okay. All right. Lord, we thank you for our time together tonight. We, uh, we want to understand sin and understand how the first sin happened, and we want to understand how the Satan works, and um, Lord, that we can understand how to, be, uh, how to put on the full armor and how to guard ourselves, and guard our families, and our uh, guard each other, our brothers and sisters, from His ploys, and Lord, all of that, I pray uh, right up front, that we can understand the rationale for that being to bring glory to You, not to earn a salvation that You've already won for us. Lord, I pray that You'll guard us from that mindset ever creeping in, um, but that in full uh, faith and full trust that that cross was sufficient, and that Christ's work was complete, that we can respond appropriately with pursuing holiness and pursuing righteousness and being Christ-like and resisting Satan and um, just revealing him for who he actually is. Lord, we thank you so much for the word and the instrument that it is to get to illuminate and help us understand. And uh, we treasure it tonight. We treasure the people of God. We treasure uh, our Lord together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.